You're listening to Peace at Risk in Bosnia, a podcast by Aegis Trust with me, James Smith. The Dayton Peace Accords were, as the name might suggest, a peace accord, fundamentally. They, they were an armistice, they were a peace agreement between three warring sides. It was a peace agreement which had embedded within it a constitution. Dr. Yasmin Mijanovic, a political scientist and analyst of Southeast European and international affairs. For the first, shall we say, 10 or 15 years after the war, this Dayton constitution got the job done because I think the priority for both the international community and ordinary Bosnians and Herzegovinians from all ethnic communities was stability. Now, when we're talking about Bosnia a quarter century after the war, it's very clear that this Dayton constitution is not up to the task. Welcome to Peace at Risk in Bosnia, a three-part podcast by the Aegis Trust, an organisation that works to prevent genocide and build peace through education. I'm James Smith, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Aegis. Episode 2. Context. In the last episode, we learned how Bosnia faces a heightened risk of return to armed conflict following an intent expressed by Bosnian Serb leader Milorad Dodik to break the Dayton Peace Accords by re-establishing the army of Republika Srpska. We also learned about the roots of the crisis in the conflict and genocide of the 1990s and why Bosnians today are taking the rhetoric of Serb nationalism so seriously. In this episode, our contributors explain how Bosnia's complex constitution, formed by the Dayton Peace Accords, has become an obstacle to the country's development. They also provide us with a wider geopolitical understanding of how Bosnia's problems are being ignored or exploited by politicians and governments, both in the region and around the world. Yasmin Mijanovic again. As a peace agreement, Dayton has arguably been one of the most successful in modern history in the sense that, you know, once it was enacted and once it was signed, there was a kind of almost full stop end to hostilities in Bosnia-Herzegovina. And so that obviously is a very significant accomplishment in its own right. The problem really comes down to the constitution of Bosnia-Herzegovina, which essentially functions as a kind of elaborate partition agreement where virtually all levels of power and all segments of the administration are divided along strictly ethno-sectarian lines. Meaningful representation mechanisms, meaningful accountability mechanisms, meaningful transparency mechanisms, all the things that, again, we understand to be intrinsic parts of a functional liberal democratic parliamentary regime, that doesn't exist in Dayton. Tatiana Milovanovic, Programme Director for the Post-Conflict Research Centre in Sarajevo, shares these concerns. Back in 995, when it was created, it was as perfect as it can get because it does give rights and obligations to the main ethnic groups, and that is uh, Bosnian Serbs, Bosnian Croats, and Bosnian Muslims. And it was in a way, you know, just to stop the current atrocities and start building the future. Now, unfortunately, we're now in 2021, 26 years after the Dayton Peace Accord was signed, and we haven't really moved from that stop. 
as the country has tried to progress and develop over the years, we've seen that the constitution as it is, is lacking a lot because it created a bureaucratic monster because for a country of less than 4 million people, we have three presidents, you know, joint group presidency, again, three for these three ethnic groups. But then on top of that, the country itself, while it does have a state level and state institutions, is divided onto two entities. One entity that's more centrally governed, and that entity has majority of Bosnian Serbs living in it. And then the other entity, which is basically another half of the country approximately, it's more federally oriented and uh, has the majority of Bosnian Muslims and Bosnian Croats living in it. And then on top of all that, we have this very small piece of Bosnia where I actually come from, which is called Birchko District, which is basically one city that is a multi-ethnic city and has, you know, people from all these different ethnicity living in it. And so when the Dayton Peace Agreement was created, we couldn't decide where to put Birchko because it doesn't really go into any of these two. And so now Birchko is a district, something similar to Washington, D.C., just much, much smaller, meaning that it does have its own institutions, even laws, or it reflects the state laws. And now on top of all this, both of these entities and Birchko District obviously have their own institutions. And then on the side of the second entity, the Federation, they also have these cantons, very much like Switzerland. Um, they also have their own institutions. And when I'm saying institutions, I really do mean everything. They all will have, for example, let's say a Ministry of Health. But then the Federation entity will also have a Ministry of Health. Then the second entity, which is Republika Srpska, will also have its own Ministry of Health. And then Birchko District will also have, usually not a ministry, but a Department of Health. And then there will be some regulations or an institution that on the state level also deals, for example, with health. Now, you can imagine that this creates a, as I said, a bureaucratic monster, and that really any change or any reform that needs to happen um, in a way that it really does cover all, like the whole country, is very, very complex to get. Because you can just imagine that there are all these levels, and all these different levels will obviously have similar but different ways of implementing, let's say, one decision by even a state ministry. And by the time all this trickles down to the less than 4 million of our citizens, you can kind of imagine where the system uh, becomes complicated. So how does the Bosnian constitution within the Dayton Peace Accords actually undermine the peace and prosperity of Bosnia today? Tatiana again. It opens up so many spaces for corruption and nepotism. And that is really what we've been experiencing in Bosnia for so many years now. For example, youth unemployment has been growing in Bosnia for all these years. Uh, one of the main problems that the youth that we talk to always come forward with is that when it comes to employment, unless there are members of the leading parties that are in the system currently, seeking employment is very, very difficult and very unlikely. And that's also why we've had significant uh, brain drain of young people for all these years. So I would say there's very, very little space for development unless we're, we're able to make some more crucial reforms. If Dayton has outlived its value, isn't it time to rethink the future? Yasmin Mijanovic. 
unfortunately, that still appears to be a very, very hard sell, not even necessarily so much among, I think, nationalist leaders um, in Bosnia, where that cuts against the grain of what they want. But I think more troublingly and, and more frustratingly still, it seems to be a hard sell among the international community, including the EU and the US. This is literally asking, in particular, the European Union merely to live up to its own stated policy priorities in Bosnia-Herzegovina. You know, when we talk about this notion of EU enlargement and the so-called EU acquis, which is the, you know, the comprehensive body of law which constitutes the the actually existing European Union, the process of enlargement and accession is the process whereby an individual candidate country or aspiring candidate country as as Bosnia is brings its laws, norms and institutions in line with those of the EU. And everyone understands, and it has even been stated previously by EU officials, that Bosnia-Herzegovina's existing constitutional regime is incompatible with those of the EU acquis. So why that has not fundamentally informed and guided not just European, but broadly Western policy in Bosnia-Herzegovina, I, I really struggle to explain. Because it's very, very clear that the future of this country depends on moving towards, again, a a liberal democratic model uh, of governance. And so it's irresponsible and also fundamentally incomprehensible that the kind of guiding mantra and guiding motif of of international engagement to Bosnia-Herzegovina has been this kind of tendency towards accommodation and deal-making with these sectarian nationalists and, and oftentimes quite illiberal and even borderline authoritarian elements who, of course, are not interested in fundamentally developing or uh, reforming the Dayton Constitution, because for them, it's pretty much as good as it's going to get. Amir Solnjagic, director of the Srebrenica Genocide Memorial Center, expands on this point. The more important part of the European Union has decided to forego rule of law, human rights, democracy, all those things that we call values in the Balkans. All of it in the name of stability. And even if the price for the stability was the resurgence of 19th century Volkish type of Serbian nationalism, then so be it. That was the logic in Berlin. That was the logic in Paris. That was the logic in in Brussels. And now we should be paying the price. I don't think so. I don't think we're willing to pay the price right now. So what might help account for such apparent disinterest in Bosnia's plight? Emir again. There's only one reason this is happening, because, you know, our cultural heritage doesn't necessarily make us full Europeans. Very simple. We are just not white enough because we're Muslims. I mean, let's be honest about it. And it's amazing how Islam was racialized in Bosnia. It's Islam that makes you uh, a racially different element. Dr. Hikmet Karcic genocide scholar and senior researcher at the Institute for Islamic Tradition of Bosniaks in Sarajevo. During international negotiations, during the war in Bosnia, people who took part in the negotiations always told the Serbian side that they cannot get independence from Bosnia because the West does not want to have a small Muslim statelet in the middle of Europe. So this is also another segment of anti-Muslim bigotry and Islamophobia, which we can still see very active today. The whole racist great replacement theory, the idea of a migrant Muslim demographic bomb in Europe is something which has some sort of sources uh, and roots in the Boston genocide because this exact 
rhetoric was used by Radovan Karadzic uh, when he wanted to justify why Bosniak Muslims needed to end up in mass graves. He said that these people, Bosniaks, uh, multiply very quickly, very much uh, over time. And in order to stop this, we need to get rid of them, basically. He did not say this explicitly, but there was a lot of coded language which can be recognized and which you can see. This message, says Karadzic, resonated with far-right extremists globally. The war in Bosnia was the first time that neo-Nazis openly fought in Europe after the Second World War. So you had a number of Krat units which were fighting in Bosnia under Nazi flags, under swastikas. You had a bunch of foreign fighters, neo-Nazis coming from Europe, but also from the US to fight alongside Croat troops in Bosnia against Muslim civilians and also against uh, the Serbian army. And of course, these people were never prosecuted. There was no de-radicalization process when they went back home after the, they fought the war. At the same time, in the Bosnian Serb army, you had a large number of Greek volunteers. When they got back uh, to Greece, they created the infamous Golden Dawn movement. Almost 50 members of them took part in the Srebrenica genocide. None of them have been convicted or investigated for the crimes they committed in Bosnia and Herzegovina. For a long time, we have tried to warn uh, the West, which was totally ignored until the Oslo attacks and the Christchurch attacks, which showed a very clear line of inspiration from the Bosnian genocide. This was when, in 2011, Anders Breivik murdered 77 people in Oslo and Atoya, Norway. In 2019, another white supremacist murdered 51 people at two mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand. Breivik, also terrorist, references Karadzic quotes from ideologues such as Sergei Trivkovic and so on. In more than 100 places, he talks about how the fight against Muslims in Bosnia was an inspiration to him. Christchurch attack, the live streaming of the attack on the Al-Nur Mosque, the terrorist had a background music of a very popular Serb nationalist song called Karadzic Lead Your Serbs, or more popularly known as uh, Serbia Strong, which was written in 1983, translated into multiple languages and which has become a very popular online meme. The inspiration being drawn by white supremacist right-wing terrorists around the world from Serb nationalism is concerning enough. But is that anti-Muslim narrative informing mainstream Western politics today. Karcic again. Milorad Dodik, the current Serbian member of the presidency in Bosnia, he plays very well with the fears of the West, with the fears of, of Muslims, of migrants, and so on. And in the last demographic summit, which was organized in Budapest, he warned that Europeans won't be the majority in Europe in 50 years' time. Milra Dodik and his associates over the years have met up with a large number of far-right nativist actors globally. So, for example, Steve Bannon met up with Jelka Cvjanovic, Dodik's right-hand person. They talked a lot in 2018. Dodik himself met up with, with members of the uh, FPO and the A- AFD, the, the far-right parties in Austria and in Germany. And also several members of the Italian far-right met up with Orban in uh, Budapest two years ago, and there was a huge demographic map of Bosnia behind them. So what does a demographic map of Bosnia showing Muslims populated in Bosnia have to do in a, in a meeting of far-right populist leaders in Europe? I think the answer is very, very obvious. Facing Western apathy and Islamophobia, has Bosnia drawn support from countries in the Muslim world, such as Turkey? Yasmin Mijanovic again. 
I am one of these people who are very wary of any kind of support for Bosnia or any community within Bosnia that comes from non-democratic states. And I think at this point, the democratic credentials of Turkey as it presently exists are highly questionable, to say the least. That having been said, sure, there is, I think, a certain kind of symbolic support that, that Bosnia-Herzegovina has enjoyed from Turkey over the past few years. Turkey has invested in certain kinds of reconstruction programs, although they've been primarily focused on reconstruction of sort of Ottoman era buildings and this kind of symbolic soft power diplomacy. Um, there's a lot of Turkish tourists. Uh, there's some Turkish educational institutions in Bosnia-Herzegovina, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of robust political support, however, I think people might be surprised by how soft, again, Turkish support in that regard has been. That in part has to do with Turkey's own very difficult and strained relationship with the rest of the NATO community. So in that sense, I think Turkish influence and power on the ground is less robust than perhaps one might expect. In terms of the broader um, Muslim world, there has been a significant influx in monies into the tourist sector, in particular from Gulf Arab countries. And while those have provided certain kinds of jobs and it has been something of a boon for the Bosnian tourist industry, the kind of overall level of political support, especially as concerns some of the more sort of sensitive topics for Bosnia-Herzegovina's development, democratic development in particular, that has been fairly underwhelming, I would say. So with neither East nor West presently helping Bosnia to overcome its problems, who would stand to benefit outside Bosnia from renewed conflict in the region? Amir Soljegic. I have been screaming at the top of my lungs starting at least back in 2015, telling everyone who would listen that Russian involvement in Bosnia is growing, that it's influence is malignant, that Milorad Dodik is their proxy, that he's even doing this with open Russian support. Russia is now openly rooting for disintegration of a sovereign UN member state, which is not surprising given what they're doing to or in Ukraine and other uh, states. I remember in 2018, I was part of a three-man team that wrote a, a report for Foreign Policy Research Institute in Philadelphia that was entitled Bosnia on the Russian Chopping Block. This is 2018. And I, I remember very well having U.S. diplomats in Sarajevo telling me that we overdid it a little bit, that we were exaggerating Russian influence. Now, three years down the road, the Americans still had no idea what's going on in Bosnia, whereas the Russians are just about to push them out of Bosnia. It's amazing. After the American taxpayer footed the bill for, you know, I mean, that's probably measurable for the 26 years of peace in this country and in this region. Yasmin Mijanovic. On the ground, we see very clearly that Milera Dodik is perhaps the most preferred proxy of, of the Russian regime, even more so than Mr. Vucic in Belgrade. That's Alexander Vucic, President of Serbia. What Mr. Dodik offers is, is a very pliable client. He's very, very eager to be a client of the Kremlin. And also he is extremely chaotic and militant and volatile. And in some sense, he's sort of the ideal Russian proxy agent. And the fact also that he is the functional head of this RS entity 
which already conducts itself as this kind of quasi-breakaway state, also makes it fit very easily into the existing paradigm of Russian foreign policy when you're thinking about things like occupied eastern Ukraine and occupied Crimea, as well as places like these self-declared republics in places like Georgia. The RS entity, that's Republika Srpska, the Bosnian Serb part of Bosnia and Herzegovina. Hikmet Karcic. What is interesting is that Russia has seen this as a great opportunity to have a very cost-free crisis in the middle of Europe in order to stop NATO and EU expansion in this area. And they probably want to build their own Russian bases in the Bosnian Serb Republic and to create a sort of Latakia in Bosnia itself. Latakia, that's the Syrian city hosting a new permanent Russian airbase established in 2015 during the Syrian civil war. And I think this is going to be a huge issue and a huge security risk for Europe itself, because if troops from Russia come to Bosnia, then that's going to create a much bigger issue. And we have already seen that the Russians are interested in Montenegro, in Macedonia, in Serbia as well. So Bosnia is only one of the countries which is in this path of their expansion. Of course, Milorodovic won't do anything without the support from Belgrade. That is something which has always been the case, because the, the Bosnian Serb uh, entity is too poor and too isolated that they won't even be able to breed without the support of Belgrade. So in this case, they are getting full support instructions uh, from Belgrade, and then on the other hand, you, they have blessings from Russia. Yasmin Mujanovic again. It's not to say that what is happening in Bosnia presently is as such a kind of Russian project, because Mr. Dodik has been at the secession agenda for considerably longer than the Russian Federation has been a significant geopolitical factor in regional politics and in Bosnian politics in particular. And of course, the broader Serb nationalist project obviously dates to the late 1980s and early 1990s. Nevertheless, Russia has made the path forward, not just for Bosnia, but for the region as a whole, considerably more complicated, because it is very much trying to internationalize the embedded instability of the Dayton Accords and the Dayton constitutional order or disorder. It is trying to make that a a kind of additional theater for its desired confrontations with the Atlantic community and the political West. And that obviously is fundamentally at the expense of ordinary Bosnians and Herzegovinians and their aspirations to live in a democratic, liberal society governed by the rule of law. Facing a context of apathy and political exploitation, it may seem hard for ordinary Bosnians to see a way out of the present crisis. As we'll discover in our third and final episode, though, solutions, both short-term and long-term, are possible. For now... The last word goes to Tatiana Milovanovic, Programme Director for the Post-Conflict Research Centre in Sarajevo. She's also part of the generation which has grown up in post-Dayton Bosnia. In a way, I would like to kind of go back a little bit to what I was saying at the beginning of our conversation as to how Bosnia that we know now uh, was created back in 1995. You know, the constitution and the current government and everything that we have um, was in a way decided for us, signed by the political leaders that thankfully are no longer in power, and um, some of them were prosecuted as war criminals. The moment when it was created, it was it was very necessary. However, 
taking into consideration that we as people didn't have much of say in it, I think we deserve much better. And I think in the same way that the, both the international community and the regional countries assisted Bosnia back in the 90s, I think they should still feel responsible for us. That would be one point. And the other point would be for them to also know that no matter what happens, they will always have allies and people in Bosnia ready to commit to the peaceful way and Bosnia and Herzegovina being one unified country in the borders that we are in today. You've been listening to episode two of Peace at Risk in Bosnia, a three-part podcast by the Aegis Trust, an organization that works to prevent genocide and build peace through education. For more information about Aegis and its work, please visit aegistrust.org. That's A-E-G-I-S trust.org. The music, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4 international license, is Marais, composed by Kai Engel. The series has been produced by Richard Newell and David Brown, with series consultant Felicity Finch. Special thanks go to our contributors, Emir Solyagic, Tatiana Milovanovic, Hikmet Karcic, and Yasmin Mijanovic. My name's James Smith, founder and CEO of the Aegis Trust. Thank you for listening. Please do join us for our third and final episode, in which we'll be asking, what solutions could there be to avert renewed conflict 26 years after war and genocide were brought to an end in Bosnia? Bosnia.